Aaron said to me, you need to read this book. I said, I am not reading that book. Have you seen the cover of that book? It's girly romance novel. I would not be caught dead reading that book. You'll like it. I'm telling you, you'll like it. She got me to try to read this book for many years. It's in our house. It's actually at our cabin. Aaron's uh, mom, my mother-in-law, uh, loves this book too. It's a New York Times bestseller. The tagline is a classic story that has captured the hearts of millions worldwide. The book was calling to me, right? The Woman in the Red Dress, Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. If you don't know this book, it came out about 25 years ago, a New York Times bestseller. And the thing is, it is uh, kind of the book that people think about when you mention Hosea in our current culture. That's what most people in our culture, if they know anything about Hosea, they know this book, Redeeming Love. Uh, so we were going to go through the book this fall, and I was at the cabin, and there's the book, and so I read it, okay? I'm not calling it a theological treatise. I'm not calling it Dostoevsky or anything like that, and it's no substitute for reading the book of Hosea, but to Aaron and to my mother-in-law, thanks for forgiving me for the bad things I said about Francine Rivers and redeeming love. <laughs> yes, there were times when I was reading it that I got a little missy-eyed and said, this is pretty good. Well, I had to mention it. After 12 weeks, I should probably say something about redeeming love, right? Well, today, there's going to be a plea to you, a plea to us. Will you listen to Hosea? Will you hear what it's been saying this whole time? Or will you cast it aside? Is the message of Hosea simply old? It doesn't deliver. Is it irrelevant? You found something better. Or I'm going my own way. Here at the end of this book, Hosea is going to call us to return to the Lord, to return from our wandering by confessing with our mouths. And in that, the Lord would heal us and make us flourish. The call today is to return to the Lord. By confessing with our mouths that we might see that the Lord desires to heal us and to make us flourish. Well, let's hear this last plea, this plea from Hosea that we would turn to the Lord. Pay attention as you look at Hosea chapter 14. It's printed in your worship guide too. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. 
Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will not say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The word of the Lord. Well, you did it. Twelve weeks through the book of Hosea. Not an easy task. Thing is, how do you communicate this book? How do you communicate the idea that a nation has wandered, has wandered to idols and other nations, has faced destruction? How do you communicate to people that have wandered that they would come back? You know, George Smith, he's a famous theologian, and talking about books like Hosea and Amos, these books are prophets that speak specifically to the northern kingdom, to Israel. They both, the, both of these prophets are after a nation that has wandered for a long time from God. How are these prophets going to get the people to turn back? George Smith rightly says, you know, when you read Amos, Amos says, look in front of you. There is destruction. Don't continue to go that way. But when you read Hosea, it says, turn, turn around and see that God is behind you. You see, Hosea is a book that longingly calls us a father after his children, a lover after his bride. Through imagery like cakes not fully baked, whirlwinds, lions, trees blossoming, lovers, wine, threshing floors. There's this constant refrain that moves through all of this poetry. Return. 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 It's the melody that just plays throughout this whole book of Hosea. And here at the end in chapter 14, the note is played at a crescendo. It's played hard. It's played in an imperative. Return, O Israel. Whenever I get the idea of 
O Israel, of, of idea of O Ephraim. That's in this passage too. I, I think about Jesus looking out upon Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, that I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. It's this calling and this longing that these people would come back and return to the Lord. And God is trying to show them here in the first verse, your way of going has not worked. <laughs> You've stumbled. It's closing in around you, the nations. It's not working for you. Return to me. Chapter 14 really structures itself in a nice way. It's a lot like how we do an order of worship that David explained at the very beginning. It starts with a call to worship, a call to return. The Lord is saying, come to him. He is here. And then it moves to a confession that the people confess. And then it moves to an assurance. Here again in these first two verses, there's this call for them. The Lord is here. He is good. Come back. It's much like we do at the beginning of a service. The Lord is here. This is who He is. He is calling to you that you would know Him and see Him. You know, it's interesting, as I read this book, my mother-in-law decided to um, basically put some quotes that she liked in the book, typed up. It's inside. The quotes that she likes of redeeming love. If you don't know about redeeming love, it's basically a book, uh, a fictional book, about 19th century California, these two characters, Michael, who's a farmer, and Angel, who's a prostitute. And this desperate situation, right? And Michael um, marries Angel even in her prostitution, takes her back to her home. She continues to run back and forth to prostitution. Again, echoing the story of Hosea uh, taking Gomer. Not saying it's exactly the same kind of situation, but that's what she's trying to do in the book. And so you see this lived out in this fictional tale um, between Michael and Angel. And here, one of the quotes that my mother-in-law wrote that she, she liked is what Michael says to Angel, this running back and forth. I want you to love me. I want you to trust me enough to let me love you. And I want you to stay here with me so that we can build a life together. That's what I want. This is really the call of this book, Hosea. A call of God. I've rescued you, Israel, from slavery. Why do you want to go back to slavery, to other gods, return to me. I love you. 
And I will give you something more. What you're doing is not working. You are stumbling. I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want you to return to me. I think six words have become very familiar in our vernacular here in the United States. There's a lot of arguments of where they came from, either from the movie Fight Club or from Dr. Phil. And the lines work like this. How's that working out for you? I don't think God is sarcastic in that way to us, but he is asking this question of Israel. How is it working out for you? Have these relationships with Assyria and Egypt and these idols that you have shaped, are they working out for you? Have they saved you? Maybe it's a question we should ask ourselves. How is it working out for you? That relationship you thought I would have with this person, that they would fulfill all of my dreams, how's that working out for you? Your kids, that if you poured everything into them, that they would fulfill everything in your life. That sports team that you root for on Sunday, have they delivered? How is it working out for you? It's interesting, you know, being around a lot of my friends who are not Christians, and they've heard these arguments from Christianity. Maybe you have heard them too. The argument that, oh, nothing else works. Idols doesn't work. Only God works. And I love it when I have these discussions with my friends. Maybe you do with neighbors or family members. They turn it back on me right? How is Christianity working out for you? And here's the thing that makes Christianity a little bit different. That I would say to them, you know, Christianity never said to me there would not be pain. There would not be suffering. In fact, I worship one that went to the cross. And when I accepted Christ, he did not say to me, I would live a life of happiness for the rest of my life. He did promise me, though, that he would raise from the dead. And he would raise me from the dead. And that there is hope there, even in a broken place. However, the message is that you follow. The lies that say that you might have happiness and joy if you just work hard enough. If you just dream enough. I'm just, I'm just blown away by Oscar speeches sometimes. Like at some point, I want someone to finally get away from the constant cliche that I hear in award speeches. If you just work hard enough, if you just dream hard enough, everything will be fulfilled in your life. You'll make it. That is a lie. That is a lie. And many 
of our children are anxious and depressed because people say, if you just work hard enough, if you just push hard enough, you'll be okay. You'll succeed. You'll make it. And then here, the guy, I know, that's like sacrilegious to say that in our culture, that that's not true. I'm telling you, it's not true. The work of our hands will not fulfill us. They will not satisfy us. In fact, actually, when we get to our goals, if you ask people that actually get to them, did it fulfill you? It does not. How is it working out for you, Israel? Return to me. You see, the voice changes when you get to the latter part of verse 2. It's now the people talking. I don't know if it's Israel or the remnant or maybe people in Judah confessing. I don't know who those people are. Maybe it's just us. But here is a confession. A confession that they're finally saying. Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will not say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. You see, the problem for Israel that both Amos and Hosea point out is that the sacrificial systems were still in play. The religious order was still there. There were still the priests, there were still the feasts, they were still doing all these religious things, but their hearts had not changed, and they were being duped. And you see that God is after them for confession. This actually says the vows of our lips. I think it'd be better interpreted the fruit of our lips. Hebrews interprets it as fruit. In Hebrews 13, it says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. See, the Israelites have divorced religion from knowing him. And God is calling them to turn from their idols. To be obedient in what he's called them to do. To have reliance upon them. He wants them. He wants a genuine encounter with them. And here they're saying, finally, our armies, the armies will not save us. Our work will not save us. And they are confessing. And they are turning from the ways that they thought that would save them to the Lord. And then they're acknowledging what it looks like to live in that presence. In you, the orphan finds mercy. It's just a beautiful, that line is beautiful because it goes back to chapter 1. Remember, Hosea's children, who he had with Gomer, these children that might have been born to other lovers, one of them was called, you are not my children. And another one, God told him to call 
no mercy. And now it says, in you, the orphan, not my children, finds mercy. God is saying, I have adopted you. I have given you mercy. Think of this. This is 200 years of rebellion of the northern kingdom. They've gone their own way. They've taken on idols. They've taken on the Canaanite religion that's around them. They've seen the ups and downs of success. And then they reached the pinnacle at the time of this book was writing economically. But then here by the end of this book, everything is starting to press in. They see that Assyria, the nation that they want the things that they have, their horses and chariots and all the wealth that they have, now they can't just ally with them. Now Assyria is attacking them. And they've already conquered part of the northern part of Israel. And in just a little bit, all of Israel will be destroyed by this nation. Their shiny stuff has crumbled. Their hopes and dreams are gone. In that place, how hard it would be to come to a place to finally just confess. It has not worked. I need to go a different way. Through 200 years of this mess and methods and ideas and things that they've tried to do to find hope and it has not worked to finally come to the place to say, Lord, you are right. And the truth is, most of them did not. Confessing in a complex place is hard. In the late 1970s, a man named Paul David Hewson from Northern Ireland, his mother died. He had a Protestant mother, and his father was Catholic, and he was living in Northern Ireland in the conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And after his mother died, his father turned to just kind of depression. And the conversations that he and his father had were pretty much yelling at each other. Paul David Hewson got a mohawk. He joined a punk rock band. He swore off religion because of the conflicts he saw between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. And he went with his merry group of guys playing punk rock scenes all over Ireland. And they got pretty famous. But this Christian group came one time, a group called Shalom. And they taught him and his bandmates about Christ. And Paul David Hewson and a few other members of his band became Christians. And recently he said, I take Jesus with me, and I still do. 
I never left Jesus out of the banal and profane actions of my life. I followed him everywhere I went. To curing debts of nations, to meeting with political leaders, to singing in front of millions of people. He even labeled his recent autobiography, Surrender talking about surrendering his life to Jesus Christ. The person you might know by now is Bono. Here's the thing. Some of us are tangled in this web of striving, of dreams that don't work out, of church hurt, of personal baggage, of not knowing if you can hear God. And in that place, it's hard to confess. And you're hedging your bets. Oh, I'll put some chips on my family. Oh, I'll put some chips on a relationship. I'll put my chips on my hobby. Maybe I'll be put chips on going to church. I'm just going to hedge my bets and see what will pay out. What's going to give me a good return? And here is what the lover is saying to us. Here is what our father is saying to us. Turn from all of these. Bet it all on me. Bet it all on me. Because I have returned that will not return void. I have something beautiful for you. Are you willing to let go of that bitterness? The wicked web that you're in? the complexities of the ways that you have tried to balance your life and all these different things to give you purpose and meaning. Here is one that will untangle your web. Here is one that will rescue you. Here is one that will not give you back nothing, but give you back bounty. And splendor. We move from a call to a confession to an assurance. God now shows Israel what it's like to return to Him, what their lives will be like. Verse 4 I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. Before he gets into the poetry and the imagery, he just tells it like it is in verse 4. He says, I have a love that is bountiful and free. I have a love that will heal you. He just says directly what he will do for them. There is assurance with him. But if that's not enough, that's not advanced to convince you, he will give you a picture of what it looks like. 
and the imagery is vivid, especially for an arid place <laughs> like there in, the, in Lebanon, in the Jordan. Here he gives images of freshness, of dew, of flowers, of fragrance, of all the senses. It would be like us as Wisconsinites in February stepping off the plane in Florida or the Bahamas and taking in the deep breath and saying, wow, this is lush compared to back home. That's the picture he gives of what it means to go with him. Another picture he gives is the trees of Lebanon. These trees that have stability and these roots that go down deep. With me, there is stability. Unlike these other places that you have gone, there is stableness there. And that image would be so vivid to them. This tree that is so huge and rooted, it is not going anywhere. And also that it is abundant. It blossoms like the vine. I think about that restaurant, the Dairy Queen on Richmond. You know that Dairy Queen on Richmond? Like in the wintertime, it's, you know, it's all you know, plain. But they have these vines on that Dairy Queen that are all over the building. And it just takes over the Dairy Queen. I sometimes just like to go to that Dairy Queen to see the flowers that are there. And the vines that take over that building. And how beautiful it is. That is the abundance. And that they would be renowned. Like famous wine. Not the $10 bottle. But the $30 bottle we sometimes get, right? And behind all this is this irony. Because the people of Israel, they've run to the Baals. They've run to the Canaanite religion, the gods of agriculture. And here God uses their God. Their God that says they'll give bounty and agriculture to show how much more bountiful he is. It's a picture that just blows them away. That he says, how can you compare me with other idols? I'm a cypress that's always green. Ephraim, your very name comes from fruit. The fruit comes from me, O Ephraim. How could you think of going anywhere else? Return. Return to me. See the bounty, the stability. The abundance. I love Aaron's mom, my mother-in-law. She is a woman of prayer. A woman that has sustained me a lot in ministry. Who, you know, someone, some people say, I pray for you. This woman prays for me. She probably prays for me every day. And I really believe those prayers have sustained us, our marriage, And she loves this book, this redeeming love book. She loves Jesus, right? But the, the things that she quoted in this book, right? She reads deep books. But here's the quotes that she underlined in this book. Love cleanses, beloved. 
It doesn't beat you down. It doesn't cast blame. He kissed her again, wishing he had the right words to say what he felt. Words would never be enough to show her what he meant. My love isn't a weapon. It's a lifeline. Reach out and take hold and don't let go. Another line, I don't think I'll ever get enough of you, Michael Hosea, never as long as I live. I mean, as a guy, those are sappy, right? It's a sappy romance novel. How dare I read this stuff in church? The words like that didn't start with redeeming love. That is how our God looks at us. You know that feeling you might have had as a woman or a guy reading Redeeming Love? Those feelings that, oh, it, it means so much, it's so good. Those are the desires in us that God gave us for something, for Him. That beautiful passion between lovers is a sign of God's love for us. That is more lavish than any lover can give you. But it doesn't end there, does it? Verse 9 is where it ends. It leaves us with this. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Think about it. This book of Hosea it was written to Israel who did not listen. Maybe there was some remnant that did. But it pointed to a people past that. Whoever. That's not just Israel. That's us too. That's us is the whoever. Whoever is wise. Who will listen? Who will listen to this good news who will listen to this news to return? Evelyn, I didn't coordinate with you this morning, but this was the same verse you mentioned is the same verse that I'll mention here. These words sound much like Jesus in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Christian, non-Christian, the way of faith is turning and trusting. Will you hear the message of Hosea to return? Will you hear the message of Christ and hear his voice and trust in him?
was Hosea was poetry, I'll leave you with a poem. A poem by George MacDonald that I love very much. This was written in the 19th century. And maybe this will think of, make you think about what this book is about and to return to him. I see a little child whose eager hands search the thick stream that drains the crowded street for possible things hid in its current slow. Nearby, behind him, is a great palace stands where kings might welcome nobles to their feet. Soft sounds, sweet scents, fair sights, there only go. There the child's father lives, but the child does not know. On, eager, hungry, busy-seeking child. Rise up, turn around, run in, run up the stair. Fair in a chamber from rude noise exiled, thy father sits, pondering how thou dost fare. The mighty man will clasp thee to his breast, will kiss thee, stroke the tangles of thy hair, and lap thee warm in fold on fold of lovely rest. Return to him. He is good. He is a lover that wants you. He is a father, and you are his child. And he has a bounty and a palace that is beyond anything this world can offer you.